What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Everybody has a role on a SWAT team, but they all work like an orchestra together. Springfield 1911 Customs in 45 caliber. Bravery and determination and tenacity. Taking violent people and drug dealers and pedophiles off the street and, and putting them in jail and risking their lives to do those things. Yeah, it's a dangerous world we live in, and we want the good guys and gals to win every single day they're out there. I stand up there and point a gun at you and tell you I'm going to shoot you. Elite hostage rescue team. This is a marathon of a career. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. This week, we'll be talking with a special guest, Unit Chief David Spees of the FBI's National Tactical Training Unit. And we'll get to the truths behind the FBI's SWAT teams and the men and women who deploy on the most high-risk operations the FBI assigns. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Frank. Yeah, it's a pleasure uh, to have you. And we're going to talk about a topic that we really don't hear a lot about publicly. We might see it in movies and, and TV shows, but we, we don't hear a lot about the men and women who uh, staff the FBI's various SWAT teams, the elite hostage rescue team based at Quantico. So we're going to learn a whole lot today about how that works when those teams deploy, what selection and training looks like. And um, we've got you to thank for 
helping to educate us today. I always start, David, with a question that tries to humanize the men and women of the FBI. Every week I ask our guests to share their own journey into the FBI, where you've come from, um, what you've did prior to the Bureau, and what the Bureau's been assigning you since you became an agent. Help us out. Yeah, so um, I joined the FBI in 2004. I was probably, like a lot of folks after 9-11, inspired to do something bigger than myself. Uh, I was a software consultant and a database administrator before my bureau career and thought, what the heck, let's give it a shot. So um, almost a year to the day of putting in my application that I got orders to Quantico. So I attended uh, the FBI Academy in January of 2004, and then upon uh, successful completion there was assigned to the Washington field office in Washington, D.C., where I was assigned to counterterrorism. And I spent, uh, I spent 14 years at uh, the Washington field office, or WFO as it's called, uh, working counterterrorism, working full-time firearms instruction. And for probably 12 or 13 of those years, I was on the SWAT team there. With my last two years there as the senior team leader, or uh, in charge of the SWAT team. And then I decided it was time again to do something uh, with a little more influence. So joined the National Tactical Training Unit down at Quantico as a, as a regional representative, GS-14. So my job there was assigned to a region of seven field offices and responsible for a general care and feeding and essentially the point of contact for those seven SWAT teams in that region back to the, the national tactical program uh, that resides at Quantico. And then about six months ago was promoted to the unit chief of that unit. So now I'm, I have care and feeding for all 56 SWAT teams, as well as the, the training arm of the hostage rescue team. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of uh, if I were to list uh, the top offices that would be a great training ground for someone who's going to become a leader and has become a leader in the FBI's national SWAT program, I would certainly have to list Washington field office among those top offices because of that responsibility that office has for the entire national capital region. Tell us just a little bit about your time on the SWAT team at Washington field office and and what, what that, what that looks like in terms of the vast responsibility of protecting some of our national icons and the degree to which it requires partnership and training with other agencies. Sure. So, you know, the, the mission and kind of the mission set that uh, WFO SWAT had, at least in the time that I was there, uh, it went everything from helping with the protective details of the attorney general and the director of the FBI to high risk warrant services, to, you know, active shooter response to, dignitary protection when we had foreign foreign heads of states or visitors that didn't necessarily rise to the to the level of protection that the secret service would offer but those folks that took really good care of our director or our deputy director on a foreign trip uh, we would provide assistance to their uh, to their protection details whether it be driving or advance for hotels and restaurants uh, you know like i said the, the high risk warrant service you know DC is no different than any other big metro area in terms of uh, it, there's a there's a very beautiful, very government oriented uh, with the museums and the monuments uh, and the seats the seat of government. But 
uh, it's got it's it's got the same struggles that a metro area has with crime and with poverty uh, and being a busy SWAT team out helping with the federal investigations in in gangs and drugs and violence uh, and also to help in our local and federal partners that are there. I had heard somewhere along the way that there's like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 2,500 different law enforcement agencies in the national capital area, which is probably pretty close when you look at the, you know, in the Northern, in Northern Virginia, the, just the little municipalities that you've got to the state level, as well as in the kind of that Southern Maryland area. And then in DC itself, uh, obviously all of the, the federal partners that we had uh, from Capitol police to secret service all the way through to park police. Tell us about the history of the FBI's SWAT program. Did the FBI always have tactical teams? What do they look like? When did it start and why did it start? Why does our FBI need tactical SWAT teams? Sure. So it started in 1973. I think credit goes to uh, Los Angeles uh, LAPD for forming the first one and and kind of the, uh, the confluence of of weaponry and crime and, and needing a specialized unit that was highly trained and highly capable of pursuing criminals that had that capability against law enforcement and the, the Bureau needing that uh, there was a, I think it was some sort of uh, activist movement in uh, I want to say South Dakota that the Bureau was involved with, with trying to basically take back a town memory serves me correct, it was a, uh, a Native American uh, activist movement that took over a town in South Dakota. And in trying to remedy that situation, the Bureau found that uh, we, were, we were wanting in a number of things. And it kind of forced, uh, forced our hands to establish a, a highly trained, highly motivated uh, group of special agents to be able to assist and help with the most complex, complicated, and ultimately dangerous situations that the FBI would find themselves in. So in 1973, we started that tactical program. Got it. Thank you. And I, I, I know there's a similar history with regard to the start of the elite hostage rescue team that's, uh, that has national responsibilities and is based at Quantico. And it ties back to, I'm told, the Los Angeles Olympic Games L.A. seems to be a center of things here. Um, and and the, the White House deciding that as good as the LAPD's SWAT team was, they probably weren't the appropriate authority to deal with a terrorist act uh, during the Olympics. So my understanding is that um, HRT uh, came out of that. Is that something that you, you're uh, aware of as well? Yeah, so 1983 would be when the hostage rescue team was stood up uh, presidential directive from President Ronald Reagan. And it was, you know, my understanding is that it's it, it, kind of what you said, right, Frank, is a terrorist incident for the Olympics probably wouldn't be LAPD's jurisdiction, if you will, and that we needed a more national or federal level response to be able to deal with and handle that. So does every one of the FBI's 56 field offices have a SWAT team? Are there some that, that don't? And and if so, is it a full-time job for those men and women? So all of our, all, all of our field offices, all 56 of them do have a SWAT team. They're uh, differing sizes depending on the size of the office, depending on the number of agents that we have in the office, and also just kind of dependent on what the anticipated or historical operational tempo of those teams have been. So the numbers may fluctuate from decade to decade. 
as terms of whether they're full-time, our SWAT program as a whole is considered a collateral duty, which means the members of the SWAT team do that, do that duty uh, on their own free will. They're not paid any extra money to do that. Uh, it's kind of a self-initiated and motivated uh, individual that wants to take on that job and, and do something uh, along that lines for more, no more compensation. Mm. All of our teams have a senior team leader, and that's kind of the head of the, uh, of the team. And we do have teams where the offices have dedicated that individual to be full-time. So their, their sole responsibility is training and ops planning and missions uh, and participation in the national tactical program for that office. And some offices have chosen to have one to, I think I've, I think there's a couple of offices that have three full-time folks that they have uh, just assigned to just the, that training and uh, operational apparatus of the SWAT team. But in general, it's a collateral based uh, duty for no extra pay. And our, uh, the majority of our SWAT members are full-time case agents that are out doing, doing the Bureau's work that the Bureau's done for 113 years as of, I think, yesterday, uh, and doing really good work. And that's kind of, I mean, they're the ones that are bringing the work to the SWAT teams. Our SWAT teams are a support element to the investigations and uh, you know, generally used at that kind of the end state of an investigation before it goes to, to trial and prosecution, albeit there's plenty of capability within our SWAT teams to help assist before that gets to that point. So what does it take? Tell us what it takes to, to make it onto an FBI SWAT team? How are the agents selected? How often do they have to train to maintain proficiency? And, and what are you looking for in a good SWAT agent? Sure. So our SWAT selection uh, is generally, it gets announced uh, in the office about 90 days prior to uh, the actual events happening. It gives folks a, an opportunity to adjust their workout schedules and, and fine tune their firearm skills in that last 90 days before the selection events start. Depending on the office, the selection can be one to two days long. And there's a, a kind of a process that kind of uh, outlines the events that they can use or that they will use. So there's mandatory events and then there are optional events. And some of our teams, uh, generally our larger teams that have more team members, they're able to put forth a little more resources towards selection. So their selections might be two days long and they might have all of the uh, approved events that are in the, the selection system. And they might use all of those in order to evaluate uh, potential candidates. And then some of our smaller teams with less resources and less operators that are available to assist might choose to go with uh, mandatory events plus a, a handful of others that they're able to choose from in order to get a good assessment as to what uh, an individual's skills start at. Essentially what we're looking for, it's funny, we've done a lot of, um, a lot of conversations with the uh, Mission Critical Teams Initiative, MCTI, and uh, Professor Dr. Uh, Preston Klein, who was uh, with uh, Wharton at UPenn, and he studied kind of the no-fail mission teams within uh, the United States, the Five Eyes, uh, you know, also down to the San Diego lifeguards, to uh, firefighters that are dealing with the wildfires and looking at how they train and assess and select individuals. And in our conversations with Dr. Klein, it's interesting when, we, when, we, when you look at a selection process, it's, it's, it's typically pretty physically demanding and we're looking at physical fitness. Um, but 
But if you take the, a selection of events aside and you just talk generally and say, hey, Frank, what do you think makes a really good SWAT operator? It, not a single person that sits in that room says, well, physical fitness. Like the first thing that comes out would be determination, bravery, motivated, initiative, trustworthy, you know, all, all of those kind of intangibles that are, are that are hard to, to judge. Cause how, how do I judge Frank, whether or not you're brave? Like, do, do I stand up there and point a gun at you and tell you, I'm going to shoot you? It, there's, there's no w- real way to, to test that. So we're constantly trying to adjust that. And we're in a big right now, a, uh, a concerted effort through the national tactical training unit or NTTU and trying to uh, redevelop what our selection process looks like. So try and maybe uh, capture and encapsulate uh, some more of those intangibles that maybe we, we weren't capturing in the last system that we were using. Really interesting. And as you said, not, not easily done capturing intangibles. You can certainly determine how good a marksman an agent is or how fast they can run or how many pushups they can do, but that, that bravery and determination and tenacity uh, that, that is a tough one. And then how they meld with the rest of a team. I think one of the, one of the things that always impressed me uh, as a field uh, office leader was everybody has a role on a SWAT team, but yet they all work um, like, like an orchestra together, nobody doing anything outside of uh, the knowledge or understanding of the other. It was a, it's a pretty cool system. And, you know, one of the things that's, that is super uh, important and that we try and impress within the program is, is that trust, right? That trust in your teammates, the trust that, that you have to trust that I'm going to do my job and I'm going to trust that you're going to do your job. And, and ultimately, that's how, that's how tactical teams and, and no-fail mission teams have to operate because the scenarios and situations that we deal with can't be solved by one person. Uh, you'd be challenged to solve them with five people. Uh, so you know, everyone kind of has to know their role. Everyone has to do their job. They have to do a good job at it. And they have to trust that those that are around you and that are on the team with you are doing their job as well. Yeah. And I don't want to, I definitely don't want to take away from the baseline of, yeah, you have to have good physical fitness. And the reason you have to have good physical fitness is that this is a marathon of a career. This is a marathon of being on a SWAT team. I, I was on the SWAT team over a decade and without good physical fitness, the job is, is monumentally harder. Uh, it's, it's harder to wear the gear. It's harder to be in the 95 degree Virginia heat in the summer with 82% humidity and standing there in a in body armor with a helmet. And if you're not in, you're not in good physical condition, you're going to struggle with that. And then of course uh, you hit on it with the firearms piece. Uh, you know, there are some very, very talented, gifted folks that are really good shooters that don't have to work at it that hard, but the vast majority of us, it's a perishable skill. So we are out training. We do have to train. There's a minimum number of training days, um, for our SWAT teams, not, not going to say kind of where that sits, but, uh, there's a, there's a percentage that there's a, a standard requirement that we do look for and that we do track to make sure that, uh, operational proficiency is being met through training and through objective training. Speaking of talent, I'm, I'm hearing, uh, and tell me if I've got this right, that increasingly female agents are part of that, that talent pool that finds themselves uh, making, it, making the team on, on SWAT. I just uh, saw recently some FBI public relations material on an agent they believe may be the first African-American female 
um, out of the SWAT team in Puerto Rico. Can you shed any light on, on the diversity uh, in terms of team membership? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's one of the things that I'm very proud of the FBI's program with diversity, not just, not just across sex, but race, as well as uh, the diversity of background too. So, you know, myself, I was a computer guy with no military, no law enforcement experience. And there's an opportunity for everyone to, that makes it through to being an FBI agent to come out and, and throw your, throw your name in that hat and, and try out and, and go through selection and, you know, not to get too far off topic, because I'll come back to your diversity question. You know, I, I feel like it's hugely important. And in the position that I, I find myself in now, it's important that when someone comes out to selection, uh, whether it be for LA SWAT team or Chicago SWAT team or Richmond SWAT team in Richmond, Virginia, that the agents that leave selection, whether they're selected or not, they learned something. I want it to be a positive experience for them that they, that they came and they either learned something about themselves or they learned something that is going to make them a better agent leaving selection. And again, that's you know, regardless of whether they make the team or not. Okay, let's hit pause so I can share something new from the folks at Wondery Podcasts. It's called Generation Y. That's W-H-Y. Imagine you have two friends who are obsessed with crime, murder, mayhem, and unsolved mysteries. They have a passion for breaking down cases that have been cold for years. Welcome to Generation Y, a podcast where hosts Aaron and Justin give startling theories, dive into forensic evidence, and share their bold opinions. They dig deep, looking for answers on cases of missing spouses, mysterious murders, serial killers, and more. One of the newest episodes tells the story of Jody, who was murdered on her way to meet her boyfriend, Luke. Because Luke discovered her body, he was a person of interest. Throughout the trial, he insisted he was innocent, yet was still sentenced to a minimum of 20 years. Was he telling the truth, or is he actually the murderer? In another chilling episode, Peter Bergna's truck crashed off a cliff near Reno. His wife, Renette, died, but Peter survived. Was it an accident, or did he intentionally crash? Generation Y reviews every detail of these cases to uncover the truth. My own interest in unsolved mysteries and crimes started as a young boy, long before I became an FBI agent. If Generation Y was available back then, I'd have listened to it. And now, thankfully, we all can. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Let's take a moment to talk about something near and dear to all of us. Sleep. If you've read my book, The FBI Way, you know I wrote about struggles I've had with sleep. Helix Sleep has a quiz that just takes two minutes and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's different, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. Take the Helix quiz and get matched with the mattress you need based on how you sleep. 
If you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz. You order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. And you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired magazines. Helix has been recommended by leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. If you're listening to this podcast, and I know you are, helixsleep.com slash bureau is where you go to take their sleep quiz, where they'll match you to a customized mattress, and how you get the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix even has a financing option and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com bureau. Now, let's get back to our discussion. Back to your diversity question, though, Frank. I think the last count that we had was uh, six or seven female agents uh, that are on the SWAT teams uh, across the 56. Uh, and that we, yes, we do have our first uh, African-American female that was selected to our San Juan team. So she's kind of in that, in that process now where she's selected and the SWAT team does some um, uh, initial training with their selectees that they bring in. And then ultimately uh, she does well or any of them do well there. Then they get sent to uh, Quantico for three, for three weeks for our basic school that is, uh, is hosted and taught by my unit, the National Tactical Training Unit. Fantastic. And, and, you know, there's a lot to learn once you've made it on the team and there's a lot of equipment to learn to master and tools of the trade. One of those, of course, is the firearm. Um, and do SWAT team members, FBI SWAT team members carry different weapons than other agents? So uh, really good, interesting question. Uh, in the past, yes. Uh, in the past, uh, there was a, the gun nerds in the audience will We'll know what we're talking about when we say Springfield 1911 customs uh, in 45 caliber. Uh, you know, all that all that says is you know, it was a it was a very um, high speed, very easy shooting gun. But when we started doing uh, some deployments with a hostage rescue team overseas, and then some of our SWAT program was involved in uh, kind of a tactical embed program as well there through the the war years. And what we found was, boy, that 1911 does not want to run when it's sandy and dirty. So there was a, an effort made to depart from that as a program pistol uh, and back to, uh, at, at the time it was Glock 22, so a 40 caliber gun. And now the Bureau's moved wholesale to nine millimeters. So now most of our teams are carrying Glock 17s, which is just a nine millimeter full-size Glock. Uh, and now uh, we've selected a new program pistol, which will be a nine millimeter pistol uh, from Glock, but it'll be a different sighting mechanism. So what we have on our rifles would be a, a red dot optic for sighting system. So rather than using the iron sights that are on the rifle, we use uh, a, a holographic sight that sits up a little bit higher and it's a red dot or a reticle. 
And we've kind of adopted that same technology onto pistols now. So we're actually in the process of building those guns and we'll start the transition process with our SWAT team this next fiscal year uh, and putting those guns in their hands on the, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, very cool. I, I learn something every single episode that I <laughs> that I do, and you've just you just shared something with me that I did not know, and we'll probably go look up afterwards. Which is this <laughs> this uh, red dot hologram sighting? That's 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 pretty cool. But go yeah. go ahead. So, and then uh, on our rifle side, it's a uh, an M4 is the rifle that our SWAT teams are carrying. It's the same rifle, the same long gun that's um, available to special agents that aren't on SWAT. It just might have a few a few different tools, uh, maybe a different flashlight, a larger magazine well to make reloads faster. Uh, a different, we definitely have a different trigger system and a different stock system that's on our SWAT weapons. But if you were to look at them, they generally are the same. They're the same weapons. Got it. So back in the ancient times, when I was uh, an agent, there were things called regional SWAT teams. There were enhanced SWAT teams that got maybe certified for maritime capability and in, in, in operations in the water and things. What, what's it look like today in terms of capabilities, um, a kind of mutual aid, so to speak, and calling out other SWAT teams uh, from the FBI in the area? Are, are there even regional or enhanced teams at this point? Yeah, so great question. And you're, you're not as old as you think. Uh, things haven't changed as much as you might imagine. We do have we do have regional teams. Uh, the regional teams used to be called enhanced teams, uh, but when we started looking at it several years ago, we're like, well, the only enhancement that they have is they're bigger. So capability wise, uh, they're still they're still a SWAT team. So uh, the moniker enhanced uh, is has kind of dropped off, and we refer to them as the regional teams. The program that we run at the National Tactical Program is is one program. So we don't we try not to differentiate between SWAT and HRT. We try and allow what the mission set or what the requirements are drive what the tactical tool is that we apply to it. So if I'm sitting, uh, say, in Mobile, Alabama, and I'm on the SWAT team there, and we are called out to handle a problem. Most of the time, we can go out and do a warrant service. That's not a big issue. Put together an ops plan and go out and serve a warrant, whether it's search or arrest. But maybe maybe one of those doesn't go, go as planned, and we end up in a barricaded situation where subject just doesn't want to come out, and there's no reason for us to risk agents' safety to go get them. Let's just turn the power off, and let's just wait them out and start negotiations that will become an hours long process. And boy, the guys on mobile SWAT are getting tired because they've been out since 6 a.m. and now we're pushing you know, 12 hours. So within the that regional kind of response that we've got in the national program, we can reach out to, we could reach out to one of our bigger teams in that region and ask for half of their team to come relieve mobile so that now we can start putting a rest cycle in. And we still can keep that regionally to where we're deploying regional assets and not having to have anyone drive for days to get there. So then let's say at that point we get to finding out that, hey, the, the guy actually has a hostage in there. Well, all right, so let's go another step up on that tier. And now we've got the hostage rescue team sitting back at Quantico. Now that we have information that there's hostages, we deploy the hostage rescue team. So that kind of response is tiered and it's nested. And it, it we just, we kind of, like I said, I we let the mission requirements drive what those tactical tools are. 
the hostage rescue team is is highly specialized in some very specific, very certain mission sets that because they're a full-time team, they're able to put the time and the training and effort towards those where our collateral-based SWAT teams don't have the opportunity to train quite as much because, again, they're full-time case agents first. And the guys that are sitting on the hostage rescue team, their full-time job is essentially training uh, missions and support when they're on their cycles. And it just seems that the, the, the crime problem and the threat and risk generally for the FBI just gets more complicated and, and higher risk. And, and so, you know, you talk about serving warrants. Um, what happens when you have to serve a warrant in a, in a hazardous materials environment? Maybe you're hitting a place that's suspected to have a meth lab, or maybe it's a terrorism investigation and someone is suspected of having a biochemical agents are are the SWAT teams trained to operate in that kind of a hazmat environment uh yeah so we're actually when you look at the country's law enforcement as a whole uh the FBI has the kind of has the uh the niche on that WM I'm gonna call it WMD for lack of a better term right or that hazmat hazardous materials um scenario to include decon and decontamination on a, uh, of its own as well. So uh, our SWAT teams are equipped to be able to serve warrants and, and, and go into those places that you might not really want to go in and breathe that air. And then, you know, obviously the hostage rescue team maintains that same capability and a, a slightly more enhanced version of it as well. Mm. You mentioned um, a barricade uh, hostage situation and let's talk about that a little more about how the FBI's tactical teams partner with trained hostage negotiators to successfully resolve something. Where, how does that partnership play out in real life on the street during, a, during an incident? So our SWAT teams deploy with crisis negotiators. Uh, every time our SWAT team goes out, there's a negotiator that's attached, at least one negotiator that's attached to them. Ultimately, there's a there's a, a whole host of reasons why someone would barricade, and some of them aren't all ill intent, right? Some of it's misunderstanding, some of it's mental illness uh, that drives that confusion or misunderstanding. So, I mean, ultimately, the the best the best case scenario in those instances is that it's a peaceful resolution, and someone can come out, like talk to them, and say, "You just need to come out." And the crisis negotiations unit at that sits in tactical section with us and, and the unit chief there, a partner of mine, uh, Scott, they do a fantastic job of training not just bureau employees and bureau folks to be crisis negotiators for the FBI, but they do a fantastic job of training local and state as well. And to be honest, they're they're every bit as busy and probably busier than our SWAT teams are because our, our local and state partners call and ask and depend on our crisis negotiators to come out and help resolve some of those issues and you know, it, maybe they ran out of negotiators and they just need one. Or there are still police departments that are out there that don't have crisis negotiation capability. So they lean on the FBI to come out and help peacefully resolve those. And they, they just do an outstanding job. We've tied into policy uh, that there has to be a relationship and a working relationship that's based in training and based in ops with, uh, with the two units and between the two units to ensure that that's a successful relationship in the future. 
You mentioned that every FBI field office has a SWAT team. Give us a feel of the, the data here. What does that translate to in terms of the number of SWAT operators, SWAT, SWAT agents the FBI has? And then how many times a year, roughly, are, are FBI SWAT teams called out to deploy? And are there any interesting trends or patterns? Are the numbers of deployments going up or down? You see anything interesting happening there? Uh, sure. Um, I'm in a... I'm going to kind of skirt the uh, first question there about the number of operators that we've got just uh, for a, a little bit of OPSEC. Um, so I apologize for that. And, yeah, and, and, and for our, for our listeners who um, often um, hear us lapse into uh, acronyms, OPSEC of course is operational security. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes there's a reason for not divulging specific data and that's perhaps one of them. But uh, so um, our op tempo across our SWAT teams, we average about a thousand ops a year. It's not like it's, it's going straight up like a skyscraper, but it definitely trends up. So if you were to look at the data and look at the numbers, say three to five years ago, you're probably sitting right at a thousand. If I were to go look at the numbers now, we're probably closer to 1100 or just maybe a titch above that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, right? Cause if it's not a good thing, that we're getting busier. It's not a good thing that there's that there's a demand for tactical units to be uh, employed uh, doing what we're doing, you know. But it's a necessary evil, I guess, and in, in the sense that if we're going to have crime, if we're going to have violent crime, we we need to make sure that we're employing the right tools and making sure that we're doing the best that we can. And you know, the, our our intent is peaceful resolution, the best that we can do. Our intent is to facilitate successful operations and missions, whether it be serving of a search warrant or the uh, arresting of a violent felon, and to do so with as little risk to ourselves and to those people that we're arresting as we can. Yeah, the bottom line is uh, agents need to go home at the end of the day in, in one piece. So with, with that in mind, what are some of the factors that make a field office manager say, this is going to be a SWAT arrest um, or this is a SWAT operation as opposed to the case agents and a squad handling it themselves. What, what, what do they look like in making that decision? Yeah, so there's actually policy that, that drives that. So there, I mean, there is a checklist, again, for operational security reasons. We're not, I can't divulge what that checklist looks like, but from my perspective, it's, it's kind of common sense, Frank. It's like, you know, you got an ultra-violent person that's, you know, suspected of being involved in murders or lots of guns and rhetoric and whatever, you know, whatever that could be. Uh, and I think a reasonable, per reasonable person would look at it and go, all right, if I have an option of using a squad of agents that doesn't train together, that has a very wide background, not quite sure what, what they're going to do in a dangerous situation, or I have the option of using a highly trained team that's been trained by uh, a national program that maintains a tactical proficiency with training, regular training to a standard. Uh, it's organized well, has been trained in mission planning and threat analysis and all of that. Let's just use the one that's probably going to make, make it safer for everyone. Oh, and on top of the, you know, the better equipment, the, you know, it's heavier, it, it, it's bulky, but the protection level is a little bit better for them. That yeah makes makes perfect sense. A lot of it 
uh, I think it's probably pretty apparent when you're on the ground trying to make that decision. I think and, too, I think too, like, I'm sorry to cut you off. The, the fact that our, so our senior team leaders, you know, they're, they're viewed from the national program as the, as part of that national program. They're, they're like the field members of the national program and they strive to be that trusted tactical advisor to a special agent in charge or an assistant director of the field office. So, you know, your time, Frank, as an SAC or special agent in charge, you had an STL. And the goal would be that that whoever that person is, when you were faced with making a decision of who's going to affect this arrest, how are we going to do this? What, what resources should we use that you pick up the phone and you call that trusted tactical advisor and you get, you get their input and you get their advice. Uh, and it should be advice that's given without ego. It should be advice that's given that looks at it and goes, Hey boss, from, the threat perspective from the capability perspective of the squad versus the SWAT team. This is what I recommend. This is what we should be doing. This is what right looks like for you. And, and similarly, we, um, we've made a few references so far to the hostage rescue team known as HRT, similar decision-making question as to when, when something goes from a field SWAT team uh, and becomes suddenly an HRT call out to deploy. What's the difference, and, and what are those factors? So it's it's it. That's an interesting question, and it's it's not an easy one because of that that nested and kind of um, regional or tiered response that we have within the national tactical program. It it could be any any number of things that would weigh in in terms of factors for deploying the hostage rescue team or deploying a piece of the hostage rescue team. We don't have to sit back and go, oh, it's because of this, we've got to deploy the whole team. We can take specific capabilities and and forward deploy that capability from HRT forward to assist with a SWAT operation. Uh, and it could, go, it could go from we need help with, uh, you know, either snipers or breaching that uh, a little bit of an enhanced capability from HRT to assist with a SWAT team all the way through to it's a full-blown hostage rescue, a boy in the bunker like in Dothan, Alabama, where we send we send the whole hostage rescue team uh, because they are the tactical experts when it comes to that kind of thing. So it really kind of depends. We've got uh, a menu, almost like an a la carte menu of items that you don't have to you don't have to sit and have the chef's menu and the tasting menu. You can you can order the the crab dip on its own or the Caesar salad. Uh, glad those folks are there um, as a, as an option, and and so you mentioned you've got my attention with the boy in the bunker story. Tell us a little bit more about that. I, I always wrap up every episode with asking our guests about success stories, how they measure success, and and I always get get some great stories out of that. Tell us a little bit more about that case. Yeah, uh, so this is someone else's story, really to tell, but kind of in a nutshell is, you know, a deranged guy goes on to a school bus and, and grabs an autistic kid named Ethan. Could have gone horribly wrong, right? Drags him down into a bunker. bunker. It's day's standoff with him. Uh, it's a very unique tactical problem because it's literally an underground bunker that the enter, entry point is on top to get down into the bunker where he has Ethan, uh, giving credit to other SERG sections like BAU and crisis negotiation and if you were to hear the ramblings of this deranged individual that 
the crisis negotiators listened to for hours and hours and hours, keeping him on the phone and keeping him busy while the hostage rescue team built a venue space to, to work with, to train and to practice and run rehearsals on. And then ultimately it ended up, um, the, the resolution was a tactical resolution with the hostage rescue team uh, making entry in through the top of that and ultimately being successful in uh, rescuing Ethan unharmed. And um, thankfully, none of our guys were injured in that either. That, that's what we call a good day. And yeah. uh, <laughs> anytime a boy is rescued safely from a, a crazed abductor, um, that all credit goes to the folks who made made that happen. That's why you and your teams exist. And that's why we're grateful that the men and women of the FBI SWAT program are out there. I can't think of a better note to end on. Um, thanks for a great conversation, David. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. And um, as I like to say, even I learned something. So thank you. <laughs> no, no, you're welcome. I just wanted to... Uh, you know, you asked about successes, but I, I kind of oh, yeah. wanted to throw credit to our SWAT teams. You know, uh, it's it's very easy to focus on that that highly elite, you know, not very often uh, referred to hostage rescue team. But you know, our SWAT team members and our SWAT teams are out every day helping with our local and state partners, or or just out doing the bureau's good work and helping great case agents come to peaceful resolutions with their cases, with arrests and, and taking violent people and drug dealers and, and you name it, uh, pedophiles off the street and, and putting them in jail and risking their lives to do those things. You know, the, the success story for, for our teams is thousand ops, almost 1100 ops a year and the partnerships that they so successfully handle and take care of with our relationships and our partners uh, without those, you know, the FBI's strength is very much diminished without our local and state partners. And I'd say that our guys in the SWAT team are doing a great job with uh, with that diversity and with uh, with making sure that the program continues and, and, and choosing the right folks for the job to continue taking that, that, uh, that torch forward. Yeah, it's a dangerous world we live in, and we want the good guys and gals to win every single day they're out there. So thanks again. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to our special weapons and tactics SWAT team episode. When you join us next time, we'll explore the public face of the FBI from press conferences and director's appearances to community relations and citizens academies. We'll ask the head of the FBI's public affairs division about the tough job of managing the bureau's public perceptions. And if you've ever wondered if the bureau cooperates with some of your favorite FBI TV shows and movies, This episode is for you. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.